Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jason Allen on the leadership principles which transformed his seminary. And so I argue, therefore, that leadership is really pretty simple. Not easy, but simple. It's pretty commonsensical, uh, it's pretty straightforward, and yes, it's, it's spiritual in nature as well. Jason Allen, next. Although in his new book, Turnaround, Dr. Jason Allen says he's no leadership guru, God used him to bring Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary back from the brink of collapse. Under Dr. Allen's leadership and through God's kind providence, it has experienced a significant turnaround. Let's find out about it now as we talk with Dr. Allen about his book, Turnaround, The Remarkable Story of an Institutional Transformation and the 10 Essential Principles and Practices that Made it Happen. Dr. Allen, how is your book different from other leadership books? Because as you write early on in your book, it turns conventional leadership wisdom on its head. Yeah, so my argument is that that we live in an age where there is an abundance of leadership materials. In fact, I argue there's way too much and way too many leadership materials, podcasts, books, magazines, conference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're awash in this. But we find ourselves in you know, the early decades of the 20th century looking around and excuse me, the 21st century looking around and in desperate need of leaders. And so we, we look to Washington, we need leaders, look to churches, need leaders, look to organizations and business, businesses, we need leaders, look to institutions and universities, we need leaders. And so there's this inverse correlation between the, the leadership materials and what I refer to as the leadership industrial complex and the actual leaders standing out there making a difference in society. Then you look back historically and you think to previous eras, whether it be you know the 20th century with individuals like Winston Churchill and Ronald Reagan or, or deeper back into American or church history, where you do have these, these individuals who towered above the landscape and really shaped their era. And they never attended a leadership conference. Uh, they never listened to a leadership podcast. They never read a leadership book. And so there's this inverse correlation. So I argue in my book that many people don't need to read more books on leadership. They need to read less. They don't need to learn more leadership mantras and principles. They need, they need to actually learn less and forget some they've already learned. And so I argue, therefore, that leadership is really pretty simple, not easy, but simple. It's pretty commonsensical. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. And yes, it's, it's spiritual in nature as well. And I have the the ultimate test case. I tell the story of Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College here in Kansas City and what's taken place the past 10 years as kind of the, the test case, the backdrop, which, which validates and uh, and, and demonstrates these principles. And you say faithful leadership is simple, but not simple. easy. Well, how can those, how can those two go together? Well, simple. I mean, not 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 particularly complicated. You don't have to be off the IQ chart to, to sort out the challenges. Uh, so simple in that sense, but but not easy because it's difficult oftentimes to therefore know what to do or to affect change in that context. So if I may digress just for a moment, I mean just. My particular context in theological education, which is which is set within American higher education, uh, facing challenges unlike never before in our history, uh, demographic change, financial change, political polarization, so much going on that, that makes these institutional roles in, in, in leadership positions very, very difficult. And so it, it is challenging. It, it is it is very difficult. But to lead through that, I believe that uh, there are simple principles that one should always apply. And I'm not saying if you do, you'll have the same results we've been blessed to have by God's grace the past 10 years. 
But I am saying uh, you'll be moving in the right direction. And these principles, these 10 principles, we'll be able to touch, of course, on, on some of them. But how did you come by them? You know, I would say partially on the front end of coming in and, and understanding some basic principles and, and having some basic experiences in leadership. And for me, those different contexts were, were athletic, sports teams, was a college athlete, high school athlete. Um, those were local church settings. Those were in other institutional settings where I was in senior administrative roles. And, and just kind of always engaging in, uh, in, in, in leadership, whether I knew it or not, even at a young age. What is more, since uh, being at a young age, I've enjoyed reading history, biographies, and you learn a lot about leadership by reading the lives of great leaders. Mm. And so for me, it wasn't, you know, this multi-decade quest to enhance my leadership knowledge and abilities. It was just really my own curiosities and interests. And you find yourself reading Winston Churchill or, you know, reading about Disraeli or Ronald Reagan or Abraham Lincoln or whomever. And, you, and as you're reading those books, you are learning principles, learning principles, learning principles. So when I came to Kansas City 10 years ago now, almost exactly some of these things we knew to practice and uh, and we sought to do early on. Others that we were increasingly aware of their importance as the years have passed by. And if you know, if, if there is a a, a a second edition of this book in ten years, uh, there might be another principle in practice or two that uh, we need to add to the list. But this is a, a snapshot in time as to what God's done here and, and how He's done it. And you say somewhere in your book here that it all boils down to one word: stewardship. Yes. Every faithful leader lives with a keen sense of the stewardship with which he or she has been entrusted. For me, uh, in, a, in a spiritual realm, there's there's a gospel stewardship, a local church stewardship, a kingdom stewardship that I feel in my bones every single day. But you can be an unbeliever listening to this radio broadcast. You, you can be a believer who's in secular context. Even those roles should be taken with a sense of stewardship. And we go back really uh, as Protestants to the Protestant Reformation, where, where we understood through and on the backside of it that it's not just the, the clergy who have specific roles called by God to undertake. No, all of God's children do. Um, we, we should uh, understand our lives in the terms of vocation. What has God called and gifted and equipped us to do in the church and in the society and undertake those roles with a sense of stewardship? So the, the, the leader who is not thinking in stewardship terms is not thinking well. And so stewardship, whether you're a steward of uh, a seminary, of a family, of a church, whatever, it, it's the same. That's right. And, and most people take the word stewardship and, and draw a direct line to the financial matters. And one should draw a direct line there um, because that, that is certainly, uh, mm -hmm. certainly a matter of stewardship. But it really is even beyond that. Your own gifts, your own time, your own family, your own calling, your own experience, your own training, all of those things being intentionally leveraged by God for maximum kingdom impact. Well, the book is Turn Around, The Remarkable Story of an Institutional Transformation and the Ten Essential Principles and Practices that Made It Happen. My guest is Dr. Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, Dr. Allen, when you arrived at the seminary, as you say, about 10 years ago, uh, it was in a, in a difficult situation, to put it mildly. Can you kind of quickly describe what was going on, what was happening? Yeah, I'll do it quickly. And again, I want to say to your listeners, those who may not actually read the book. This book is not about how great a leader I am. It's not. If you read the book, you'll detect that very quickly. We give all credit to God's kind providence and then humanly speaking to the team he's given us here. So this is much bigger than me, the leader. And every leadership endeavor is much bigger than the leader. In fact, principle number one of leadership is it's not about the leader. But, but what was uh, you know, the context here roughly 10 years ago was an institution that had been through multiple years of financial crises. Um, construction projects on campus were stalled out because of the lack of funds. 
several different declarations of financial austerity taking place where people were laid off or, or were involuntarily cut back to four days a week. Um, th- th- there had been denominational controversy about the institution. Accrediting agencies had been swarming like vultures overhead. The morale was low. Uh, the campus largely was in disrepair. Um, there, there was a lot there that needed to be fixed. And so I was speaking on the book turnaround here earlier this week, and someone asked me, how did you like triage what had to be done first? I yeah. said, to be honest, I didn't really have the margin to triage. Some of it was just dealing with what showed up with the greater degree, greatest degree of urgency in my life. <laughs> right. I'm unpacking my, the week, the first week on the job when I'm unpacking my office, I'm hosting our accrediting agency for our decennial review once every 10 years. So that's gravely important. And then also I'm told that same week that we're not sure we can make payroll. And I mean, again, that's what I had to deal with. And so, you know, some of that I, I just had to deal with as it came, but other things we did begin to triage once we create a little space and began to really prioritize investing financially in those areas that were most institutionally crit- critical and those areas we believe would, would most uh, effectively strengthen the institution. Okay, and, and as, as we talk about these principles, and actually there are four other principles you say longitudinally or sort of throughout the book, they they pop up, you say, to kind of be aware of them. Can, can you touch on those, those four principles, longitudinal I, principles? I sure can. I talk about four longitudinal themes that show up, and I wrestle with whether they should have their own chapters. Mm-hmm. They don't because they really show up in every chapter, but the first longitudinal theme is to lead where you are. Every listener has somewhere to lead. It may be three kids. It may be two grandkids. It may be Sunday school class. It may be an office group. Uh, Lead where you are. Don't spend your time daydreaming about where you hope to be one day and lead. Lead where you are now. The second principle is God's kind providence, or the second theme runs throughout the book. And the story here is an ending story of God's kind providence. Ten years ago, we had about 1,000 students. This year, we'll finish with over 5,000, which is truly remarkable in the broader context of our education. Ten years ago, our... Our uh, net financial assets were just over 20 million. Now they're now they're over 80. Mm. And so 10 years ago, our 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 budget was about nine million. Our revenues that year was just over eight. This year, our our revenues this past year were in the mid 30 millions, and our our bills were considerably less than that. So so we see God's kind of providence in that. Number three, credibility is essential. Uh, the leader must have credibility. He must intentionally cultivate that by how he carries himself, what he believes the conviction he shows, the character he demonstrates, and so forth. Then fourthly, um, it takes a team. Again, it runs throughout the book. It even has a, a dedicated chapter later. But but every wise leader surrounds himself with people that are gifted and committed, and he or she is not threatened by their gifting. Uh, they seek to empower their gifting. They seek to strengthen their gifting. They seek to, to, to celebrate with them when their gifting uh, enables them to flourish. And that credibility uh, issue, credibility principle, uh, you make uh, just a fascinating point, and I've heard it made in sermons and other places, but that it takes years to accumulate credibility, but seconds to lose it. That's right. That's right. And that, that's that's shocking to consider, but I think as I put in the book, you know, credibility leaves town in a sprint and returns in a crawl, and, that, and that's how it works. Mm. Well, on these 10 principles, there is know your context, hold your convictions, define your mission, pursue the vision, cultivate trustworthiness, cherish your team, insist on accountability, steward your money, and communicate clearly and foster the right culture. Obviously, we have very limited time, but to the first one, know your context. And that that is so important and so central. Obviously, that's why you put it as the first principle there. Can you talk about what that means to know your context? 
Right. Leadership is just contextual. And so the analogy I use is to lead an institution or organization um, that, that existed before you, you, it's like sitting down at a, at a chess table and you sit down and other people have been playing that game before you and other people will play it after you. And so you look at the board and some pieces are already off. Other pieces are in altogether places that you wish they were not. But that's what you have to do. You have to lead where you are. You lead the organization you have, not the one you wish you had. But also talk about one's own stage of life contextually, the stage of one's family, uh, the stage of the team contextually. And so the wise leader is always alert to the contextual realms that he's operating in and is uh, committed to leading with those contextual realities in mind. And it also, I think you talk about your uh, the uh, the audience that you're trying to to reach, whether it's students or, or or your constituency is the word. That's right. Look, I've been in the role here ten years. Um, that's a long tenure by way of uh, you know higher education. The typical college president uh, lasts about five or so years, and so it's a long tenure. But it's not that long as far as broader social change. However, a lot has changed in ten years, and so the needs of our churches. Um, are always evolving. And we as an institution have to adapt, not theologically, we are confessionally bound, but adapt to exactly what are the pressing issues confronting our churches so we can equip our pastors who will graduate and go serve those churches. Uh, I'm just skipping uh, because our time is limited, but define your mission. And can you talk about the importance, what that principle is, the importance of it, and how it is sort of a, uh, a guiding light for you? As you serve yeah, there. that's right. And I, you're going you're gonna to skip here, which, which is great. But I would kind of bundle the next three together mm-hmm. by way of institutional identity. Hold your convictions, define your mission, pursue the vision. Okay, so convictions is what you believe. Uh, mission is why you exist. Vision is where you're going. Your convictions ought to be perennial. Uh, we're not updating our confessional statement every two years here. No, those are, those are enduring theological convictions. Our mission is enduring. We exist for the church. We're a seminary devoted to the local church. So there's an enduring nature to that mission. The vision is a little more seasonal, where we are every few years having to update strategic priorities and, uh, and, and, and determine what we're going to invest in financially. And again, we're having to know our context that as we do it. But, but the mission for us is, uh, has been key the past 10 years. Those three words for the church we talk about a lot. Uh, those three words for the church define why we exist. It's our constituency has heard that. Our employees have heard that. Our trustees have heard that. Our donors have heard that. We're super clear about that. And as we have been clear, that's helped to define our constituency. And not everyone will resonate with that mission, and, that, and that's okay. Uh, but the people who do resonate with it will usually resonate deeply and be very committed to the work. What in God's Word, what in Scripture, the words of Jesus, has particularly uh, been a light to your path in terms of leadership? Well, I would say Jesus has promised in Matthew 16 to build his church. Jesus promised to build his church, not, not a parachurch organization. And, uh, and I love parachurch organizations. I'm serving one as president. But parachurch organizations, including Midwestern Seminary, have to be able to draw a direct line from their organization to the church to really be on solid ground as to, as to why they exist. And so we serve with confidence that Christ is committed to building his church, and we are committed to serving his church. Therefore, we believe we will abide uh, in his favor as we continue to be devoted to his church. And I believe in your in your book, you quote Jesus' words uh, where, I can't remember the entire verse, but he who is faithful in what is little or in the little things will also be faithful in much. That's right. Into much is given, much is expected, factoring into those stewardship categories. Well, tur- turning to uh, the next uh, of the 10 principles, uh, Dr. Uh, Allen, cultivate trustworthiness. Cultivate. You have to build it into your 
into your staff, into those that you are leading. How, how do you do that? That's right. And we came in talking about this 10 years ago, but I'll tell you uh, that has deepened in importance to me and to us here. 10 years ago, I remember my first meeting with the senior leaders I inherited, and I talked about you know, to me, trustworthiness is more important than loyalty. Loyalty sounds like I'll cover for you if you cover for me. Mm. And uh, of course, you know, th there are morally appropriate categories for lo loyalty as well. I mean, no one wants to be in a foxhole with someone unloyal or disloyal, right? Mm -hmm. But trustworthiness is more important. It's a two-way street. Um, they trust in me and I trust in them based upon character, based upon a track record provenness, based upon shared convictions based upon um, even practical things like not dropping balls, like following through. And I tell people that trustworthiness is uh, it's more of a dial to turn than a, than a, a switch to flip. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that should be getting turned to greater and greater trustworthiness over the years as we serve together and grow in our knowledge and uh, our confidence in one another. So it seems like this, this group of three, cultivate trustworthiness, cherish your team, and, and insist on accountability are also bundled together? Because they deal with your team. Yes, you can do that. What I would say is that, uh, yes, certainly, cultivate trustworthiness does, cherish your team does. We want to be the type of institution where people who serve here know that we are after their best and, and that we, everything from compensation, doing the best we can to giving them margin to be fathers and mothers, um, to, to believing in them and trusting them. And I, I say things like this that no one on this campus should, should serve in fear that they are like in a mental penalty box in the back of my mind. I don't do that. So if there's a concern on campus, we'll deal with it. I don't have like grievances that I've accumulated and I have like a, a list of bad employees. I don't do that. Everyone here serves with a clear conscience, um, should be able to serve with a clear conscience, knowing and with full confidence, knowing they have my support unless they hear otherwise. And if they haven't heard otherwise, they have my support. And then accountability, that's a huge piece, um, both at the moral level, but also at even the um, operational level here. Who is responsible for what? What are the goals associated with that? Um, how do we measure your success? I, I tell people, you, uh, you, know, you, you occasionally get what you expect. You, you consistently get what you inspect. And, and that's a huge piece. And so we do track things. We don't have just generic institutional you know, goals floating around, generically applied to a generic group of people. No, we, we have specific goals. Uh, with specific targets, assigned to specific people with specific resources and specific expectations. Ronald Reagan, trust, but verify. Uh, communicate clearly. It almost goes without saying, but is there anything that you would add to that? I, I would add to that that it's not just in a you know, Ronald Reagan, Winston Churchill sense of, 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 of rhetorical flourishes. It's for people to actually know you say what you mean, you mean what they say. And, and when you can develop that culture, then, then folks don't live in fear of, a, again, of actually being on a bad list. They don't live in fear of what's the president really thinking. They don't live in fear of like, so what, what are we really doing here? And over time, if you communicate clearly and responsibly and they know that they're getting it straight from the president, then that I think that empowers people and it reassures people. And then finally, fostering the right culture. It's intangible in a way, but you say that it is so perceivable that you have had people come there, want to work there, a, a scholar that you discuss in your book, because of the culture, even though he taught it at a prestigious place. That's right. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, one of the many stories like that where folks sense a, a real cheerfulness here, that we are absolutely convictional. We're not in denial about the world we live in, um, the cultural challenges before us. So we are absolutely convictional. We're crystal clear about what we believe and teach. We're cheerful because Christ is building his church. And we've read the end of the book of Revelation. And we believe all of this cosmos is appointed toward its ultimate divine ends. And those will be carried out. 
So we serve here cheerfully in that context. And, uh, and look, it, it, it just, it goes a long way. And perhaps that's what I'm most proud of about this institution is not our financial strength or our enrollment growth, but the fact that we're a, a happy place. We had an accrediting agency on campus recently for their, their decennial review. I mentioned it 10 years ago, it was, a, it was up now, 10 years later, we're having it again. And uh, you know, they have, they hear about three days, they have formal sessions with students and faculty and trustees. And they have a lot of informal sessions, you know, because, because to try to see what they can pick up. And, um, the uh, the team told me in the exit interview they said look we have talked to as many you know trustees and and employees faculty staff and students as we can we've been like had impromptu conversations and, and like we cannot find someone who's not happy here and I chuckled I said well praise God for that I said, I'm sure they exist right I mean every organization you have people at any given time who are who are aggrieved or disappointed by something so I know they exist but praise God they're not in abundance and we work hard to make it a healthy, happy place where folks enjoy serving. And I don't know where this is here, but obviously there is some kind of, obviously, at a seminary, a doctrinal statement that everybody agrees to, everybody signs. Oh, yes. It's uh, under our very second chapter, Hold Your Convictions. And it's not just a doctrinal statement, it's four. And it, let me tell you, this is not on you know in a dusty book somewhere. These are living and active, uh, ongoing in their regulative uh, authority and expectation. Faculty members annually resign them, and don't just resign them, but but uh, fully reaffirm them. And so we're very thankful for that. I know I've got to let you go here, Doctor Allen. You say anyone can lead, and and I'm wondering, isn't leadership a spiritual gift, or can you help us to understand that anyone can lead? Yeah, I think people are leading beyond obviously the spiritual realm, corporate leaders, politicians, and so forth. And that's part common grace. And back to the marketing of the book, a lot of these principles are transferable at their root. Uh, they're biblical and spiritual in nature, but by common grace, they can show up in different domains of life. But I would add further, those in the spiritual realm who are believers in Christ, whether they're laity or clergy, they should undertake their leadership responsibilities, again, with this heightened sense of stewardship. Understanding their ultimate accountability is not to, um, you know, finishing in the black next year with their business, but to honoring God in their business and leading in a way that they do. So, yeah, so that's that's what I argue. And wrapping up, uh, just kind of bundling these last two together, your hope for the book and why did you dedicate it to Dr. Albert Muller? Yeah, my hope for the book is that that organizational leaders and pastors and parents will read it and get something out of it. And so regardless of where you are and the, the scope of your leadership, I think you will get something out of it. I hope you'll get a lot out of it by way of things to apply to your life. More broadly, because there's a very encouraging story that runs throughout. It's God's kindness on this institution. And look, we live in an age where Christians need more good news. Mm -hmm. The church needs more good news. And I want people to be able to read the book and, and be encouraged by, by God is doing special things in special places. And one of those special things and one of those special places is Midwestern Seminary. I dedicated the book to Dr. Muller because he's a very dear friend. Um, I served with him for six and a half years at Southern Seminary before coming here. Uh, I've known him since college. He preached in my church as a guest preacher the night I was baptized, and he took an interest in me as a very young man and um, has just been very, very kind to me over the years. And so we have a very close relationship. That was Dr. Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and author of Turnaround. Now a brief discussion about how you can be involved in getting God's Word into the hands of people who need it. My next guest is Jerry Kingerly, founder of the Bible Foundation. Jerry, you're an all-volunteer ministry. You started back in 1987, which through networking gets Bibles to those who need them. Tell us how it works. For 20 years, we mailed Bibles directly overseas. But on our website, 
we provide uh, a couple files that list uh, people throughout North America that uh, accept Bibles from the public and ship the surplus to other countries or to ministries that do ship the surplus. So what that does is that enables everybody to get involved however they want. Just imagine if thousands of churches uh, would download our wanted poster with the mugshot of a Bible that says, bring Bibles here, and then flow those Bibles to the people that can get the surplus moving globally around the world. Now, we publish scripture on small sheets of paper that magnify uh, who God is, what life in Christ is all about. And those go by the millions to these shippers that are able to distribute them globally. And we work in English, but English is a prominent language in many, many countries around the world. And those people can work with native languages. But as that scripture goes out, it creates a demand for Bibles, and that demand is uh, people want container loads of Bibles, which physically we're not able to do. But everybody doing what they can do can harmonize with the family of God globally. It is phenomenal what God is doing through his people. So, Jerry, you've told me this um, before we began speaking here in this interview, but uh, people, of course, can send Bibles to you, or they, either a church or individuals, can become, I think what you called a distribution center in their community, where people in that community can bring their uh, old or used Bibles, and then, th- and then they can be a distribution center, sending their Bibles then to one of these ministries across the country that then send the Bibles. They have partners in various countries of the world. That's right. But the neat thing about it all is anybody that knows anybody that uh, is shipping internationally that would want English Bibles, we list people like that on our website so uh, everybody that can accept Bibles from the public, some of the shippers are not able to do that. But a master collection center can accept Bibles from the public and get them to the shippers. And that way, everybody can involve. Even homebound people can get involved if they have access to the Internet because people, we need to find the shippers. And there could be many people in your listening audience that ship containers uh, for one reason or another uh, to other countries that would want English Bibles. We need to find those people and then get master collection centers established near them so everybody can gather Bibles so they don't have to mail all those Bibles to Bible Foundation in Oregon. But as this network grows and there's like dozens of these master collection centers listed on our website now, all throughout North America, but we should have hundreds of them listed. And so that's the value of Christian radio, is to help the family of God realize this is something everybody can do. And we don't ask for uh, commitments. We're not asking people to commit to do anything. It's just as God puts it on their heart to get involved, 
do what God puts on your heart to do is our message. Well, my guest today on His People, Mr. Jerry Kingerly of the Bible Foundation. Well, Jerry, uh, tell us about your October Bible Drive. We have this year-round ongoing Bible ministry, the uh, networking ministry. But in 1992, we figured out that if we would just promote the annual October Bible Drive, that that would allow us to let people know about Bible ministry and easy ways that they could gather Bibles and uh, get them to people that can move the surplus. We mail to hundreds of uh, ministries throughout the United States, to prisons, to chaplains, to uh, people who have ministries themselves. So we, we gather tons of Bible materials ourselves here in Oregon. And we provide those throughout the United States because we can mail a library rate and we can afford to do that uh, with small packages. But that lets everybody get involved. So the Bible Drive is a focal point on an annual basis. And so tons and tons of Bibles materials flow as a result of that. But it's in harmony with networking uh, globally uh, year-round. That was Jerry Kingery, founder of the Bible Foundation. Go to bf.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Hal Poe on the life and work of British writer C.S. Lewis in the latter years of his life. Chuck Colson was converted through reading Mere Christianity, and untold numbers of people have had that same experience. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.